My name is Ben Zulsdorf. I am the high school director here. Yes, I have a handful of students in the service too. What's up, guys? Yes. And uh, yes, my wife and I moved here in 2017. We came from Kansas City. And uh, Kansas City has a few really awesome things going for it. The first thing is that it has amazing barbecue. Who here has experienced Kansas City barbecue? Raise it nice and see. If you know, you know. <clears throat> okay, there's not, I will say here, I've had nothing that compares to it except for Chad Kadoff's barbecue. You know how Chad Kadoff's is good. And Yenzi are pretty good too. <laughs> so Kansas City barbecue is off the charts. The food is amazing. The coffee is amazing. I'm not a huge coffee drinker because I get like really jittery and I feel like my heart's going to blow up and shoot out of my face. And so, but I love the taste of it. So it's like this really conflicting thing. Cause when I'm in Kansas city, I'm like, I got to drink coffee, but then I'm like this the rest of the time. Like I freak out. Coffee's amazing. The people are so kind and hospitable and the price, the cost of living is like an eighth of the cost here. So that's pretty awesome too. Uh, but Kansas city lacks in outdoor activities. And so when Shelly and I moved here, uh, I knew that we had some sweet things to look forward to uh, living in California. I'm from Colorado, and I grew up snowboarding and being in the mountains. And, uh, and so I had that, but we didn't have a beach. We didn't have the ocean, and that's awesome. But I'd heard of Yosemite. And uh, was just, yes, Yosemite's an amazing place. Now, I, I'd seen many pictures of it. I was forced to look at it when you buy a MacBook in like 2012. It was like you saw it on your screen. So you have that going. Uh, I saw the movie Free Solo with Alex, Alex Honnold who climbs that. It's, it's an amazing movie. Um, but you don't get to really understand the sheer magnitude of Yosemite until you see that. Go ahead and throw that image up. Andrea, when you go to Yosemite, I remember when we drove there, there's this point in time in which you drive around the bend and then you see it. Oh my gosh. Like even like this is all just a picture. It doesn't do it justice. When you see it, it is just incredible. Just amazing. And then when you get closer to it and you see the magnitude of El Cap and Half Dome and, and the way that the glacier cut it however many years ago, like it's just this profound beautiful thing. The experience of Yosemite and actually seeing it is much different than talking about it or seeing it on a screen. And it's the best things in life that are like, you have to experience them. You can't just talk about them, see them. Uh, you, have, you have to see them and, and experience them. You have to know them. I'm convinced that in our faith, a lot of times we end up doing that with the most magnificent things of faith. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. We're good about talking about them, looking at them, but the experience of them is entirely different. And this morning, I want to talk about the experience of forgiveness. And I, I want to make a really clear point this morning. Forgiveness, I think, is way, way more difficult than we could imagine. In fact, I would say forgiveness is absurd. And here's where we're going this morning it's absolutely absurd. Forgiveness is absurd. God forgives. This is, the, this is the flow of the morning. We're going to talk about how God forgives. It's in his character for, to, uh, to forgive us. The absurdity of forgiveness seen always, Old Testament, New Testament, in who God is. We're going to look at how Jesus reveals just the fullness of that absurdity. And then there's going to be an invitation for us. That's the movement this morning. We've been in summer in the scriptures, good news in the Old Testament. 
We're going to take a look at the book of Zephaniah this morning. Zephaniah is a minor prophet, which is a shorter prophetic book as compared to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, which are longer. And the, and the minor prophets were written at a time in Israel's history when they were being conquered over and over again and divided. Going through that next image up, Andrea. So I want to situate this in a location because I think this is actually really helpful. So this arrow represents right here. This is, this is the Holy Land. This is Israel. And um, what's, what's happening, this is like really, this like kind of blew my mind when I learned this in seminary. So all this is desert. And then up here is civilization and down here is two. And so this is called a land bridge. And basically... Israel was situated in the center of this land bridge and being thrown between different empires coming in and out. So first it was the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, that was the exile, then you had the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And the Romans is when Jesus comes in the scene. We're going to hang tight for a second before that in the Assyrian period. Zephaniah is written in like the mid-6th century BC, just before Babylon comes and takes them out. Now what's amazing is that their location, the Israelites believed that despite all of the conquering that happened, God was intricately involved in all of it. See, the Israelites had been promised that they were going to be a people to bless the nations. And they believed that any form of judgment that happened when these different groups came through, these different empires, they believed it was because God had willed it because they were missing the call they were missing the story. And in the minor prophets, over and over again, the minor prophets are addressing idol worship. So idol worship led to different behaviors that just weren't okay. I want to go ahead and look at that. Uh, you can read along with me. This is Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm going to bring up a really intense piece of judgment in Zephaniah. This is what that says. Uh, going to go to the next slide, I'm going to actually do that too. Yeah, let's go there. That's great. So uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, this is verse 4. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Okay, that passage is brutal. It's like so intense. It's so full of just pure judgment. But it's judgment geared towards something. It's judgment because of idol worship. And in particular, this is worship for Baal and Molech. Now, Molech is a god who people sacrifice to through the act of child sacrifice. So when I know that, it's like, I'm glad that God doesn't want that. Like, God's not okay with that happening. Like, that's actually good news in this judgment text. There's a way that God designed us to live, and it's not that way. So God says, no, I won't have that. In this passage, the very end of it says, be silent before the sovereign Lord, the day of the Lord is near. Hit that next slide. The day of the Lord in Hebrew is Yom Yahweh. And this was this big themed uh, event, this day of judgment where God's going to say, hey, no matter how much we make a mess of things, no matter how much we make a mess of things, there's going to be a day where God changes that. This is the day of the Lord. 
Okay, now that doesn't stop there. Go ahead and fast forward. We're going to go up to the very end uh, of Zephaniah. This is where God uh, ends, Zephaniah ends this text. He says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So the good news first we see is that God's not okay with us doing whatever we want to do. And the, the really good news is that he actually saves us from it. The mighty warrior who saves, who delights in us. In his love, he won't rebuke us, but will rejoice over us with singing. So right away we see the good news in the Old Testament that God is a God who forgives. God forgives. See, God has and always will be forgiving. It's in his character. It's been there since the beginning. It never changes. And we see that very clearly in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this has become so full and so evident. So fast forward now, go through 700 more years. Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus claims to be God and also starts to teach radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Like Praying for your enemies, turning the other cheek. When one of his disciples asks, how many times do I forgive someone who wrongs me? Jesus responds, 70 times 7, which is kind of like saying unlimited. You always forgive. You never not forgive someone. And he forgave the unforgivable. He loved the unlovable. He healed the unhealable. He did radical acts of forgiveness. And then he invites his disciples, to participate in this. And he actually gives a really distinct, distinct call for how we ought to forgive. So we say as a church the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. We've been doing that this past series. And what's amazing is that this prayer has embedded into it the heart of forgiveness. When his disciples say, how do we pray? How do we talk to God? When we address the creator of the universe, the divine who is with us, amongst us, redeeming us, how do we pray? Jesus says, this is how you pray your father. God is connected with you that way. He's your father. He says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What's happening where you're at, we want here. We want that to mirror here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and help us administer justice to those who piss us off. No, forgive <laughs> Forgive those, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There is an exclamation mark on the Lord's Prayer. The way that we bring heaven to earth is participating in forgiveness of trespasses. Now, I want to hang with this, the word trespass. Not tiny mistakes, not the things that are easy to forgive, trespasses, the things that we can never undo, the things that are done to us that can never be undone, the things that we do to others that can never, we can never take back. So Michael Hill uh, got back from sabbatical this week. We're trying to applause for Michael being back, which is awesome. Yeah. And Michael Hill uh, told me before, I, before he left on sabbatical seven weeks ago, he was like, Ben, I need you and Linda to shepherd and steward the worship experience from we're going to come to church. And I was like, totally, got it, not a big ask at all. And then he's like, I need you to also water my plants in my office. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and I did water them. 
but I didn't do a great job of watering them. And then last week, I went into the office because I kind of stole Michael's office, and I found this uh, on, the, on, on, on the office. It's a very tiny plant, and Katie had gently reminded me that I didn't do a good job. It says, wow, thanks, Ben, frowny face. Like, no, JK, it's just like, you, you didn't do your job. You, you killed Michael's plants. If you know Michael, Michael loves Michael loves plants. Like, he's a big, like, this is one of his things. It's actually amazing. He actually does things with plants. He manipulates them in ways. It's called uh, bonsai is the process. It's amazing when you see a tree that he's bonsai. These ones weren't that, thank, thank God. These were just small little things in there, but they're, they're not looking so hot. I blew it, and I needed to ask for Michael's forgiveness. Now, I'm pretty sure that Michael will forgive me for the plant. I think, I think he will. I didn't infringe upon his character too deeply by not keeping this little tiny plant alive, but I still need to ask for forgiveness from that. This is not, I would not consider this a trespass. When Jesus says to pray that prayer, to forgive those who trespass against us, it's on the things that are way greater than just killing people's plants. He gives uh, as Jesus continues on in his ministry, there are two examples that I think stand out above anything else when it comes to forgiving those who trespass against us. Jesus tells two stories that really stand out. The first is the story of the prodigal son. If you've been around the church, you've heard this story a million times. Stories, there's a father, there's two sons. The younger son says, hey, dad, screw you, give me my inheritance, and leaves. Squanders his wealth, at the point when he's ruined it all, blown it completely, has nothing left, says, I'm going to try to come back and see if my father will allow me to be his servant. He comes back. The text says that the father is eagerly waiting him, runs after him, puts a robe and a ring, and throws a party. See, that level of forgiveness, we don't understand the younger son, what he did in that time to take your father's inheritance and to go is basically saying, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. Your, your influence in my life means nothing. I'll see you later. So the trespass here was that the son had infringed upon the father's character. And we see that God says that it's actually that. We forgive those who infringe upon our character. I and mean, this is why the older son gets so upset because he's been there the whole time, right? He gets so upset because I've been here. You didn't throw a party for me. And, and the father's like, yeah, because I still love my son. I still love him, and he's back, and that matters more than anything else. He's turned back to me, and we'll celebrate that. He's forgiven. It's absurd. Forgiveness is absurd. That level of forgiveness is absolutely absurd. Forgive us our trespasses against our character. But then the greatest experience of trespass that we're modeled to forgive comes in the moment when Jesus is put on the cross. I'm gonna read a larger section of text and we're gonna highlight one piece of it. But I want you to follow along with me. This is from Luke chapter 23. This is the moment of the crucifixion. And it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be ex executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, you today will be with me in paradise. Okay, a lot of text there. Two things of forgiveness. I want to land real quickly on the moment where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. I grew up reading this passage of the church, and I grew up understanding this to be uh, God saying to God's self, forgive them, they don't know they're killing us. They don't know they're killing, because if you knew that Jesus was God, like if you really knew, you wouldn't kill God. And I kind of read this as like they're just making a really big mistake that God uses and redeems. And while that's totally true, there's also a very human reason why Jesus was crucified. And it's in that human reason where we're actually empowered to forgive divinely like Christ has shown here. So Jesus was killed for two particular reasons. Jesus came and he said that he was the Messiah. Now, do you remember that mighty warrior language from Zephaniah that we just read about? The mighty warrior who saves. See, Israel believed that the Messiah was going to be someone who's going to come, an agent from God, not a divine, like a, not a divine being, a human agent given divine power to overthrow the empire to restore Israel back. That's who the Messiah was supposed to be, a mighty warrior. That's what Israel wanted. That's what they were looking for. And so Jesus comes, says that he's that person, but doesn't do that. And he models an alternate reality. You know, the kingdom isn't about revenge and throwing over things. It's actually about overcoming evil with good, love, mercy, grace. Those are the things that rule at a deeper level than anything else does. When you forgive, you turn the other cheek. That is it. That's the kingdom. The mighty warrior, that's who Jesus was. And people were pissed about that. They were very upset that Jesus wasn't the mighty warrior to overthrow. They were mad that Jesus wasn't that kind of Messiah. So he must not be the real Messiah. The other thing that Jesus gets killed for is by claiming that he was God. Now, Judaism is objectively monotheistic through and through. Now, as Christians, we have all the theology to hold this, right? The Trinity, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three different persons, all one. Like, that's what we have. We've wrestled that out. The church wrestled that out for centuries before we can get to that now. But at the time, for Jesus to say, I'm God, that was a direct threat to Judaism, a direct threat to monotheistic worship. And so the Jews, they couldn't have it. It was blasphemy. So when Jesus was killed, he was killed justly in their eyes, 
This isn't the Messiah that we asked for. He's not doing the things. He's just causing up a stir in the kingdom of Rome, not for our kingdom of Israel. He's not doing what we need him to do, and he's claiming to be God. He has to go. This is blasphemy. That's why they killed him. So when Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, they really didn't know. And this is the parallel with us. We really don't know the ways that we put others on crosses too. We don't understand the ways when we say things or do things out of self-preservation, the ways that we hurt and crucify those around us. We don't understand the ways that we put people on crosses, and we don't understand the ways when people put us on them either that they don't get it. They don't understand. Jesus models forgiveness in this moment, in his flesh. The Son of God, yes, on the cross, but Jesus, the man, fully, 100% man, fully, 100% God, saying, Father, forgive them now in this act. I'm being crucified Jesus isn't ready to forgive them. He's being crucified. So the first point with forgiveness of trespasses, forgiveness is about willingness more than readiness. I understand that forgiveness takes time. When you think about your deepest wounds, it takes time to get there. Maybe never, but the worst of the things that we have to forgive people for, the things that no one should be forgiven for, those are unforgivable always. Nothing can undo that hurt. And so we'll never be ready. But Jesus models in this moment willingness over readiness. We don't have to be fully ready to forgive somebody. We just have to be willing to do it. Jesus models this in the moment on the cross. Are you willing to forgive somebody more than you're ready to do so? I want to read a story from a diva. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> I'll read a story from a devotional that uh, Shelley uh, was reading over Lent. This is an excerpt called The Power of Forgiveness by Johann Christoph Arnold. Just kind of follow along with me. This is a story of this kind of forgiveness. When Miami native Chris Carrier was 10, a former family employee abducted him, assaulted him, shot him in the head, and left him to die in the Everglades. But Chris survived. In the years that followed, he struggled daily with the insecurity of knowing that his abductor was still at large. Recognizing that staying angry would never change anything, Chris found the strength to move on. Then some some 20 years later, he received a telephone call that changed his life again. It was the police calling to notify him that an elderly man at a local nursing home, David McAllister, had confessed to being his abductor. Chris visited him the following day. He saw how David's body was ruined by alcoholism and that, unable to see, he was now facing death with only his regrets to keep him company. At the end of their time together, David clasped Chris's hand and told him he was sorry. As he spoke, something came over Chris like a wave. As he said later, Why should anyone have to face death without family, friends, the joy of life without hope? I couldn't do anything but offer him my forgiveness and friendship. In friendship indeed, in the days that followed, Chris visited David as often as he could, usually bringing along with his wife and their two daughters. They spent hours talking, reading, and even praying together. As they did, the old man's hardness gradually melted away. 
See, this is radical forgiveness, a true trespass. There's no way that that person was fully ready to forgive. But what forgiveness also does when we enter into it is it stops the bleeding. Forgiveness stops the bleeding. The ways that whatever that wound has caused us that we're carrying, when we choose to enter into that, it stops the bleeding. In my own story, my family, there's one story of forgiveness that supersedes them all. When I was six years old, my grandmother was left by my grandfather. My grandpa moved away, married another woman, and moved across the state of Colorado. I went from seeing him all the time to seeing him maybe once a year. At the end of his life, which was just before the pandemic, uh, his wife, my stepmother, or my my step-grandmother, the care had gotten too intense for her to do by herself. So she moved him back to Denver to spend his last days dying in the presence of my mother and her sister. And my grandmother offered to help be there for him. She would show up at the nursing home and spend time with him and talk with him and feed him lunch And she would put the right ingredients on his sandwich because, of course, she knew the right ingredients on his sandwich for being married to him for so many decades, even though they'd been separated for so many decades. She knew how to love and care for him after all these years. She washed his laundry. She spent time with him and no resentment in her heart at all. When I asked her, I asked her, Grandma, how did you do this? Like, how did you do this? She looked at me and she said, Ben, I knew to have peace, I had to forgive him. I knew that to have peace, I had to forgive him. If you ever meet my grandmother, she's got that look in her face where you can tell like just compassion and grace and love those, those old people bags that happen not to, not to, not to, yeah, it's just like that genuine compassionate look, you know, that old, that's like so warm and welcoming. That's her. She didn't hold any forgiveness. She didn't hold any resentment. She forgave him fully. There's no trespass against her that way. She modeled that fully when she was on the cross, when he left. And this is the message for us, guys. Forgiveness is resurrection power. When we enter into forgiveness at this level, when we forgive at this intensity, when we're on the cross, when we forgive from that space, Somehow, mysteriously, God uses that moment to recreate and cycle in heaven on earth. This is why the Lord's Prayer is so profound. On earth as it is in heaven is brought in when we forgive when we're on the cross. That level of forgiveness is the primary means in which we partner with God to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. There's no greater act than when we participate in that level of forgiveness. Forgiveness is absurd, absolutely absurd, because the mighty warrior God stayed on the cross and asked and modeled forgiveness for us in that space so that when we're in that place, when we have those nails in our wrists and we feel the weight of the world on us, we can say, God, forgive them. 
They don't know what they do. And when we commit that to each other, we can recognize, I don't know what I do. And Jesus has taken all that for good, fully on the cross. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is absurd. And it is resurrection power. Fully made. I want to end with three takeaway points. I want to go invite the band to come back up to our invitation. First question for you is, have you received God's forgiveness? This level of forgiveness. The things that we do that we can't take back. The things that we're ashamed of. Have we received that level of forgiveness on our lives? And this step is important because we can't give it until we receive it. We can't give it until we receive it. Have you received God's forgiveness to that level in your life? The second step, who might you need to forgive? Who has put you on a cross? And you've been up there for a long time. And maybe this morning God's saying, I'm, I'm ready for you to trust me and how I got on the cross so you can get off. And allow me to breathe resurrection into you to let that go, to stop the bleeding. Who do you need to forgive? And here's, this part is so huge. Who might you need to ask forgiveness from? Because we don't know what we do. We don't know how we wound and hurt. But sometimes we get a little idea, we get a glimpse, oh my gosh, I may, I think I might have done that. Now forgiveness doesn't require an apology both ways. You, and those of you who wrestle with forgiveness, you know this. You don't, have to for, you don't have to get an apology from those who wounded you to forgive them. Most of the time, that doesn't happen. My grandmother didn't get a sorry from my grandpa, but she still forgave him anyways. But a sorry does help. <laughs> and if you can do it, you should. Amen. Who might you need to ask forgiveness from? The absurdity of forgiveness, this is why it's so insane. This is impossible. This is impossible to do. It's so hard to forgive at this level. But the good news is that you don't have to do it alone. The Holy Spirit, the resurrection power, when we say yes to Jesus, the same power that empowered Christ to forgive on the cross is the same power that raised him from the dead, is the same power that's alive in you and me, and it's the same power that allows us to forgive at this level. We don't do this alone. So in this time of worship, would you respond, receive this level of forgiveness from God? It's resurrection power. It brings us back to life. It makes the thin space between heaven and earth disappear. This is the means by which the kingdom of heaven is ushered forth. How we participate in the kingdom of heaven is through radical, absurd acts of forgiveness. Would you stand? Pray with me. So Jesus, we enter into your spirit, your presence. We ask that you teach us, you have to show us how to forgive while we're on the cross. Because you've actually taken it all on you anyways. We ask that you 
pull us deeper into understanding how to forgive trespasses at this level. We respond to you. Would you speak to us now, Jesus? Teach us how to forgive and ask for forgiveness in these ways. We love you. We worship you now. We respond to your movement amongst us in your name. Amen.